You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 27th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Yo. And Evan Bernstein. I'll second Jay's yo. Yo, yo. And raise you a hey. <laughs> yo. So what is that, jive this week? Is that your language? <laughs> oh, is that boy. What that is? <laughs> Excuse me, sir. I speak jive. Yo. Yo is not jive. What is yo? Yo is Main Street. Street? Well, Evan, tell us what's special about today. July 30th, 1898. Now, I imagine we've all eaten breakfast cereal at some point in our lives. Once or twice. Even you, Rebecca. And uh, the uh, not-too-delicious cornflakes, in my opinion. Oh, I love cornflakes. Uh, Are you crazy? Well, they're just kind of bland, There's not enough sugar. You know, you do. You put a little banana in there, then it's good. Yeah, you put a fruit. Slice up bananas. Uh, Strawberry is my fruit of choice. Or raisins. Or or just eat frosted flakes. (laughs) Or mango. Or talk about something else. (laughs) Cornflakes... On this day, were invented by our friends, the Kelloggs. That would mm-hmm. be Will Keith Kellogg and Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, Battle Creek, Michigan, on this day in 1898. To prevent now, ska- masturbation or something, right? <laughs> well, yes, we'll get Whoa. on that note. Um, Did it work? See that comment? <laughs> no, they, so they kind of they figured it out by, sort of by accident and realized uh, they, got, they let some... Uh, some cornmeal like get wet overnight or something, and they cooked it up the next day and tweaked with the uh, ingredients a little bit and came up with cornflakes for the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which the two of them ran together, which was a spa, you know, late yeah. 19th century spa that uh, wealthy people would go to for, uh, you know, for their health, fresh air, uh, exercise, the pseudoscience du jour. Yeah, and uh, enemas. And, Whatever. <laughs> and, Physical uh, culture. Something called uh, felturizing. Felturizing? <laughs> Did you oh, just say felturizing? Oh, my God. Oh, I'm no sorry. Way. Not felcher. I, I, uh, I, sorry. I, I inverted the E and the L. It's fletcherizing. Uh, oh. I think felturizing is something else. Isn't right? that when you make arrows? Let's just move on. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> It has something to do with enemas, I think. So, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and his brother Will uh, were members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and practiced vegetarianism. Those barbarians. uh, Which was a dietary principle taught by the church. Mm -hmm. So you can actually see where they derive a lot of their kookiness from. (laughs) Um, Hey, something wrong with vegetarianism. Kellogg was not an entire, entirely a quack. He was like a half quack. A a qua? Yeah, a qua or an ack. You, mean, you choose. <laughs> uh, you know, he he advocated low-calorie diets. Uh, he developed a recipe for peanut butter and granola and cool. flakes and, o- and other breakfast foods. <laughs> just talking yeah. about peanut butter and granola. And he, and <laughs> he uh, apparently <laughs> spoke of the warnings about uh, smoking and that it could be uh, related to lung cancer, which oh. was certain, certainly uh, turned out to be very true, as we figured out. Uh, later, but he also offered hydrotherapy, electrotherapy, mechanotherapy, and radium cures. Yum! Gotta love that radium. Yeah, I mean, but at the time, you know, this is a hundred years ago. Yeah, you know, it's hard. It's yeah, th- those were all all nonsense, but they were pretty popular in the day, and there wasn't much in the way of science-based medicine at the time. 
Rebecca, you mentioned masturbation. And, I did. And uh, indeed, Kellogg did not approve of sex at all. Uh, Even for procreation? Consu- no, he never, he never consummated in his marriage, but he adopted a bunch of kids. Wow. And even worse than sex was apparently masturbation. It was self-abuse, and he believed it caused acne, uh, atrophied testicles, and general physical and mental collapse would be the result of masturbation. Hmm. So. He thought that a man ejaculating atrophied his testicles. That's what the good doctor thought, yes. Well, we are all just back from our trip to Las Vegas for the amazing meeting. And boy, meeting. Are our arms tired. No, yes. I didn't say we flew, although we did. Um, <laughs> Tam 9 from Outer Space, it was, uh, I think, the best Tam ever. What do you guys think? Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Pretty hot. Agreed. Time. It was Total Tam. I, really, I, I won't compare it to Australia. I kind of leave that one on its own. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Australia the- was improved just for the fact that we were in Australia, though. Right. Not that it wasn't a great conference in and of its own right, but yeah, Tam Australia was, yeah, was in Australia. That was a huge advantage. <laughs> it's kind of like going to Tam on the moon. You know, it's like I'm on the moon. <laughs> you know, right. you're really excited. Right. Yeah, All the speakers are rocks, but it's awesome. but f- as far as the Las Vegas Tams go, definitely was the best one. Tam was yeah. inspiring in a way that it hadn't been for me in a while, just because I've, I've gotten to know everyone and. You know, I've heard a lot of uh, people's talks before and everything. This year, definitely, there was something about it. There was a, there was definitely an energy in the air. The uh, everything from the design. Good job, JRF. Very proud of you guys. We have two upcoming events we want to talk about too, very quickly. We will all be at DragonCon 2011 in Atlanta, Yay. Georgia, September 2nd through 5th. Look for us in the Science and Skeptical tracks. The final, final schedule isn't out yet, but we will be doing a live show Saturday at 8.30. We hope to see a lot of our friends and listeners there as well. And September 23rd is the SGU 24 episode, our 24-hour live streaming video and audio insane podcast. Oh, boy. Insane? Yes. Yes. I don't know how you guys talked me into this. Shut <laughs> up. Uh, it was Jay's idea. Really, Steve? It'll be, it'll be, it's going to be awesome. We're going to be uh, Skyping in skeptics from around the world. We'll be doing a whirlwind tour of skepticism around the globe as we stay up for 24 hours. We've heard from some of our listeners that they are planning to have SGU 24 parties where they're going to be, you know, playing. They'll be streaming the show they'll be, live. Yeah, they'll be streaming the show live, and I guess staying up with us for 24 hours, or at least some people. So that's if, awesome. If you are planning on doing the same, uh, let us know, and it, and you should. Uh, I think it could be a, a good party, a lot of fun. If you are doing that, let us know, and we what we will try to do is during the 24 hours, we will try to touch base with all of the SGU 24 parties that are going on. Maybe we'll have you on the show, you know, by Skype or whatever, however we're yeah, set we'll up to get, do it. Yeah, we'll get the listeners involved somehow, definitely. Yeah, yeah. but if you're sitting Great. alone in your basement listening and watching us, you know, get a then few friends okay over. Too. <laughs> it is. It's okay. But I want, we want to get like 10 people, 15 or more, a lot, big parties. That would make it so much more fun. And from around the world, nonetheless, you know, let's, let's have, let's, you know. Have people in Germany having a party? There's going to be uh, one, that one listener out there, like Linus with the Great Pumpkin, trying to talk yes. all of his friends into coming to his <laughs> SGU party. They're going to call us awesome. if, we're, if we're all good and skeptical. They'll call us. <laughs> They're here. The SGU. <laughs> no, that'll be actually pretty cool. I mean, as 
as we uh, change time zones, it's going to be one of those experiences where uh, we're going to be talking to people that are actually going to be trying to stay up with us, which I don't know why. It'll turn into a sleepover. It'll just be a big, fun sleepover. Who doesn't love that? Bring your right? new pajama party. Pajama party. Yeah. Tops are optional. Bring your frosted no. flakes. Rebecca's yes. going to pierce Bob's ear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, that'd be hilarious. We do a live ear piercing during the yeah. show. Let's Ooh. do that. I'll do we'll that. We'll play Truth or Dare. <laughs> Dare. Oh, show. MFG. I dare Marcus in Britain to blank. <laughs> All kidding aside, though, I, uh, I happen to know what some of the programming is going to be because we've already been writing ideas down and coming Glad up with content. Knows. And <laughs> I think we actually have some really good stuff cooking. And, you know, with, over the next two months that we have to prepare the show, I think we're going to really pull something off cool. I hope, uh, I hope it turns out to be as good as it seems it could be. As it is in your head right no, now. Good sentence. Right. Good does, sentence. does it ever. <laughs> you know, the listeners having parties and everything is a great way to, you know, kind of be a part of this and contribute. But what other ways can people contribute to, to the cause? <laughs> Why, thank you, Evan. <laughs> Funny you should mention that, Evan. Uh, so we have been revamping our website a little bit. The, uh, the, if you go to the homepage, the skepticsguide.org, and click on the store button, that will take you to our new store page and uh we have some uh, some additions skeptical robot is now hosting some of our swag including our designer t-shirts that were previously only available at live events now you could go online and buy them we still have all of our cafe cool. press material available for sale as well there in addition there are the uncut episodes uh, these are um, paper download special uncut episodes of the SGU. It's a good way to make a small donation to the SGU and get something in return. And we have uh, more options for uh, donating to the SGU. Uh, you, now you can do a recurring sort of a voluntary subscription, either on a monthly or an annual basis. A lot of people have already done this. Thank you to everyone who has, who has donated or has purchased any of our items. It really helps support the SGU and all the stuff that we're doing, including the videos and the live show. And So take a look, and we really appreciate your support. All right, well, let's go on to some news items. Rebecca, you're going to tell us about a victory in Texas. Yay. Yeah, I am. That's, oh. Those aren't words you hear often, are they? <laughs> Now let's talk um, about football the, or something. From like the Alamo on, it's pretty much been all bad news. But <laughs> I, I, you might recall that back in April, uh, we we gave a report about some creationist materials that were being sneaked into Texas schools, um, or at least they were creationists were attempting to get these in. They weren't in textbooks previously. We've been talking a lot about. Um, the, the problem of the Texas school board determining uh, what goes in the textbooks and those textbooks then influencing the rest of the country. Well, uh, we sort of won that by default, I think, because the, their budget fell through and they couldn't place the order for the textbooks and blah, blah, blah. But then they turned to online materials um, and these PowerPoint presentations that they were going to approve for use in Texas schools. They had some really good materials that were apparently teaching about evolution in a scientific, scientifically correct manner. And then they had uh, a company called International Databases, Inc., 
promoting anti-evolution arguments in some really just terrible PowerPoints. Um, not just terrible in that they were unscientific, but uh, they were just terribly worded and there were spelling problems. Uh, they, were, they were just really underhanded and, and awful, awful materials. Well, the Texas Board of Ed voted on whether or not to uh, or uh, voted on which materials they would use and in a landslide 14 to 0 vote uh, they approved the scientifically accurate textbook supplements. Inconceivable! uh, Yeah. I think that it can't be understated. Fourteen to zero. I mean, yeah. that's you know these things usually go down five to four or seven. You know, eight to seven. You know, they're close. Yeah, this was a blowout. There were there are fifteen board members, but one was on vacation, so who knows how she would have gone? <laughs> but quote unquote vacation. Yeah, I mean, n- normally the the board is actually split. I think pretty evenly. Um, it's seven and eight. Uh, you know, in terms of anti-evolution and pro-evolution, I suppose. So, yeah, this this was huge, absolutely huge. Um they they did uh hold some hearings on the matter and on the matter and um Eugenie Scott's organization NCSC uh was there doing their job trying to convince the board that the supplements that actually were in favor of evolution were the correct choice. And I guess they made a they either either they made a very convincing argument or the board actually had enough education amongst them to look at the anti evolution supplements and realize that those weren't doing anybody any favors. They were just so bad. So like practically subliterate. I thought they were slicker than that. Yeah, not in this case. Uh, nor- normally they are. Normally they are. But, I mean, in this case, you've got a company that was, you know, I, I-, I think that usually you see things that are a lot slicker and they uh, they require a lot of money to put into them, like in the case of creationist-friendly textbooks. But in this case, these are just, all you need is access to a computer. And so I think that this was just some vigilante creationist who got it into their heads to try this out and it didn't necessarily go through the the levels of approval that creationist claptrap usually goes through these days guys why do we continually hear these stories coming up like they decide this they decide that they go back and forth is it that the school board changes and then they just keep changing their minds like why is this significant versus the you know the thing that happened three months ago well, they don't they don't really change their minds very often. Uh like I said the the board has pretty consistently remained split on the question of evolution um and on uh political affiliation and and things like that. It's it's a pretty even split. And rarely do we get this kind of, you know, huge win. Like I said, the previous quote unquote win in terms of the the actual textbooks I think came about mostly because of a budget crisis, not because uh, the board suddenly saw the the benefits of actually teaching science in science class. This kind of decisions are constantly coming up. This is just the normal process of school boards. We pay a lot of attention to Texas because of their dominant effect on the textbook industry. Although 
This was just a supplement, right? These were just supplements, not... Yeah, these were supplements, and they weren't printed printed supplements. As far as I know, I think that they were all online supplements. So it's not the sort of thing where an order that Texas places would necessarily carry over to other states. But you are talking about an enormous state, you know, chock full of young minds. So it is, regardless of whether or not... Texas's decisions carry on to other states. It is an important state to. I mean, they're all important states, but you know there are a lot of students there that need, I think, to be protected. Uh, well, let's go on to some Pluto news. Have you guys heard the good news about Pluto? Plutonic it's a planet moons. again. Nope. They, they found yeah. some it's more moons. Planet. They found some more moons, right? Yeah, they found an, uh, a fourth moon of Pluto, which surprised me because I didn't realize it had more than one. Hmm. Did you know that, Bob? You heard about the – in 2005, two additional moons of Pluto were discovered by the Hubble Space Telescope, Nix and Hydra. I'm glad you admitted that because I wasn't huh. – I was afraid to admit that. When I heard that story, I had the same reaction. Wait, what happened – two and three? When were they discovered? <laughs> right. how, did, how could I possibly miss that? I felt so embarrassed. But well, it was I'm only glad. a few uh, years ago. But yeah, I, I guess Still. it wasn't big news. I didn't hear it. I just – Maybe it was just overwhelmed by the news about Pluto being demoted to a dwarf planet. Yeah, probably. I, yeah, that's what I'd I think like to think. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I, I was surprised that I hadn't heard too about Nixon Hydra. Cool names, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And now the Hubble Telescope has discovered a fourth moon of uh, Pluto, and it Named? doesn't have a name yet. It just has a designation. Uh. It won't bore you with the numbers. Uh, it, there, you have to to confirm its orbit a little bit more, and then they'll give it an official name, you know, something more memorable. I was looking up the names Nix and Hydra. Nix, so, you know, Pluto is the the god of the underworld. Mm. Uh, and Nix is the Greek goddess of darkness and night and the mother of Charon. Charon is, the, is Pluto's first discovered moon. And Charon is the... River um, Styx? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Charon's the ferryman. Ferryman, yeah. Right. The ferryman... Hydra is a, a beast five, that five-headed. Yeah, that's dragon. that's the Hydra. That's yeah. it. okay. And it's also the bad guys in the new Captain America film. Uh, uh, oh, don't 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 don't! I haven't seen that. <laughs> that's not a spoiler. That's just a fact. Okay. Who doesn't know that? Okay. Yeah, who doesn't know I, that? Come on, it's standard Captain America. I'm a DC guy. I'm not a Marvel <laughs> guy. So when I see these things, there some of these things are new to me. Yeah. Right. Here's okay. So I saw the news of the new moon and. Its diameter is estimated to be 13 to 34 kilometers. Hmm, that is saying, tiny. Yeah, that's tiny. You could walk across that thing in a half a day. Yeah, that is, <laughs> you know, we, we have, there are asteroids that are bigger than oh, yeah. the, this new moon. I mean, what, oh, so yeah. what is the significance of finding this pebble? It's, it's still a satellite of Pluto. It's still orbiting around Pluto. Well, all right, for scale, but what does it tell Pluto us? itself is 2,300 kilometers across. Charon is 1,200 kilometers, so more than half the diameter. Mm. Nix and Hydra are only 30 to 115. They're tiny, too. Yeah. This one's a little smaller still, but they're still moons. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. This is right on the edge of the, of the, the Kuiper Belt. There's lots of rocks and, and ice and debris you know, orbiting in the sun out there. So it's not surprising that, the, that any of the dwarf planets in the Kuiper Belt are going to have lots of little moons around them. Do, do they call them moons if it's a yeah. dwarf planet or just yeah. a satellite? Or, no, they're calling right. them moons. So pretty cool. And this, it's, it's actually fortuitous that we discovered it now because in 2015, the New Horizons probe will fly past Pluto. 
And now that they know that uh, there's this fourth moon, they'll be able to program it so that it will take a look at it. Sweet. And there may be a fifth moon. We don't yeah, know. Yeah, it could be. I mean, Why not? And these things it's the are size tiny. of a small rock. <laughs> Does it seem odd to you that we haven't found this thing yet? No. no again, it's tiny, you, dude. No. Yeah, but it's, it's in our solar system. Oh, there's lots of stuff in our solar system we're still coming across. We're, we're, we're going to find more moons. You have to see the picture. I mean, it's really just right at the, right at the limit of the, of the Hubble resolution from the picture that we're seeing. Uh, so I guess until they were really looking at Pluto long enough with the Hubble, I don't think any other instrument would have seen it. And no. perhaps, perhaps an earlier version of Hubble couldn't have seen it. It took yeah. the, some of these latest updates and upgrades. Maybe. Po- I'm not sure. Possibly. Possibly. Yay, Hubble. According to Lawrence Krauss, it's the only good thing the space shuttle was ever used for <laughs> to fix Hubble. <laughs> but more on that another day. Yes, Lawrence Krauss was, Krauss was a little negative on the space shuttle. But yeah, but we'll, well, that's an in- one of the many interviews we came back from Tam with, and you'll be hearing soon. Bob, yes? tell us why some scientists are saying that uh, we may, in fact, be alone in the universe. Well, they're not specifically saying that, but um, uh, more alone than we think, perhaps. But some scientists... Uh, have recently began saying that life in the universe may be rarer than we thought, uh, but they say, on the other hand, it might not. Yeah, uh, I know. So that, so that might sound wishy-washy. <laughs> Good to know. Um, Big time. But it, uh, but it, and it does. But uh, as usual, when you dig, when you dive in a little deeper and look at the science, it gets really interesting, and you see what's going on. Now, astrophysicist David Spiegel at Princeton University and physicist Edwin Turner at the University of Tokyo argue in a paper that they call Life Might Be Rare Despite Its Early Emergence on Earth, a Bayesian Analysis of the Probability of Abiogenesis. Now, they construct their argument based on Bayesian reasoning, which is essentially a form of logic that lets you reason with with uncertain statements. Now, they reason that life on Earth uh, could have been could have been very common, which it which it is, or it could, it might not have been, and there's no reason to prefer one over the other. The authors wrote, this is a good quote, although life began on this planet fairly soon after the Earth became habitable, this fact is consistent with life being arbitrarily rare in the universe. So kind of a counterintuitive conclusion. You might you might not think that it was those facts were consistent. Now the common reaction is, and when I read this, you can't, I couldn't help but thinking that, you know, hey, life began on Earth almost as soon as it was possible. It seemed like over the past 10 or 15 years, um, there was like one study after another that said, hey, no, life began even earlier than we thought. And they kept, so now it's like at, I think a few hundred million years, right, right after the Earth cooled down. It was, you know, a few hundred million years is really nothing. So very, very fast, life seemed to just, just emerge. But that, that leads you to think then that given suitable conditions like a rocky planet and an atmosphere, liquid water, that life is inevitable, right? But, but, the, and, but their argument goes that it took billions of years for intelligent life to arise. If life didn't begin early in the history of Earth, we wouldn't be here to contemplate this topic. You know what I mean? So that kind of reminded me of the anthropic principle, right? If the universe uh, wasn't exquisitely tuned to allow life like ours to exist, we wouldn't be here to think about it. So it's kind of like a similar thing. Um, so it's the fact that we can even contemplate this topic now means that life began early, relatively early in the, in the history of the Earth. So the bottom line then is that, that you could be very encouraged and excited by the idea that life arose quickly on Earth. Just don't be highly confident about the ubiquity of intelligent life elsewhere based on that fact alone, because that fact alone is not enough. Because it, it it could just be a very happy coincidence that, hey, uh, life began very early on the Earth, but that doesn't mean that it has to happen elsewhere as well. Um, yeah. 
What struck me as I was reading this is that this is a conversation we've had. You know, we've yeah, talked. Yeah. We we didn't put it in like rigorous Bayesian terms, which is why yeah. we didn't get it published in a journal. But, but it's the same thing. It's like what what can we infer from the fact that life arose as quickly as it as it did on the Earth? It certainly suggests, but it does. But it, but they're right. It doesn't prove that life is right. therefore itself is therefore common. But and they also said. The, the thing that we've said before, which is the the ultimate problem with any kind of statistical inference is that we have one data point. That's it. We need a second mm-hmm. data, data yeah. point, and then Even everything will change. Any second data point. Yeah, because the thing is, it, what they're saying is life could be so rare that it only arose once in the universe, and that could still be us. And we just have no data to right. tell us that that's not the case. Yeah. So... But if Mars, Mars or Europa, Europa yeah, but even yeah. any second instance of life, so that dramatically changes the statistics, especially if it's two in the same solar system. Well, wh- However, what we do know, though, Steve, is that the conditions for life are everywhere in the universe. Yeah. Right. So we we have calculated how many planets are like Earth or have you know have liquid water and all that. So I think the real question is. What's going to happen to the chemicals that are on that planet, and is it likely that some type of thing is going to crawl out of nothing? Maybe, maybe not. That, that's the whole point. I mean, just because you've got the raw materials doesn't mean that you're going to have to necessarily take that that big step to, uh, to you know to, to to reproducing to biology. I mean, it it's, it just might be such a a crazy coincidence that it happened that we could be extremely rare. You know, not necessarily alone. I don't think anyone would really argue that uh, we we are necessarily you know that. We, that we're alone in the universe, although that is not impossible, just the fact that we are much rarer than we thought. And that's the tie-in to the whole Drake equation that a lot of these articles, and I think the, the authors themselves, uh, they make this tie-in to the, to the Drake equation, which, which calculates uh, the, you know, the, the intelligent communicating life in, in the galaxy or, or, of course, in, by extrapolation in the universe. And there's that one factor, one of the factors in that equation you know, scientists are very confident about for years. I mean, because all these other factors in the equation are so speculative. I mean, how do you really know, you know, how how common these these uh, requirements for life are? But we do. We were very confident that that if you have the right conditions, life is going to happen. And but what these authors are saying now, well, this factor. I don't think you could put it at close to 100% in the Drake equation. We don't know what that factor is. And it's kind of depressing that we were very confident about this one factor in the Drake equation. And we're, and they're saying that, well, not necessarily, you know. Well, the thing is, we just don't know. I mean, there may be the, – the, the question is, in any solar system of planets, what, how, what's the, how many uh, times has life arisen in that system? You know, and, and you're right that we've sort of used one as a sort of default answer because that's, that's the one example that we have. But maybe it's 0.01. Maybe it's only one in 100 or one in 1,000 systems. Right. Or maybe it's five times a system on average. You know, we, we don't know that either. We, there, there's a huge range. And My it, question is, if we do, let's say we go to Europa, we drill through the ice, and we look at life down in the, in the, the, uh, the liquid water underneath the, the surface of Europa, what if that life is related to life on Earth? Does it still that count as two, or is it really just one? I would say, I would say one. Life arose once, but got spread around well, the solar system. Hmm. Seeded. Oh. Bob, but isn't the Drake equation... Just a thought experiment, and not really something that to, you know, count on. I I, I never thought it as like a rule. It's just more of like an idea of. No, it's, it is a thought experiment. A lot of people do call they they treat it like a rule, though, and I think that's what annoys a lot of people uh, in the 
general public is this idea that you're using all of this um, this estimated it just sounds like made up crap I think to the to to a general audience like well, you made up this formula and then you guessed at a bunch of the things and then you came up with a with a product how like well the, the formula is just logic it, yeah. right it's, it's correct simple math but but it's the, just that we're the, stupid I mean, well, we, don't, yeah, we, they, don't, we don't know <laughs> what to plug in, so the error That's bars it. get multiplied and multiplied and multiplied till there. You know, it could be could be alone in the universe, or there could, could be swarming with civilizations, and, or anything in between. We have it doesn't help us actually narrow down the range of possibilities. Could be it mean, is just identifying the variables, right? And is the point of this report that we should perhaps not be investing lots of money into programs like SETI? No, no. It, no all it means no. is that we shouldn't necessarily be as confident as we may have been on 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 the prevalence of life in the universe. That's it. Yeah, it's really just a very minor point. It's still one data point, and then we can't extrapolate from that as much as maybe some people have argued previously right. because of life's early, you know, occurring so early. My, my uh, pessimistic uh, worry, if you will, is that if we did, you know, we do get to the point where we actually can survey multiple other systems that will find that most worlds with life have something that's the equivalent of algae or bacteria, and, and very few break through to the interesting multicellular life, let alone intelligent or technological life. I mean, that, that we really have no idea how common that is, even though it happened once on Earth, you know, in terms of technological civilization, at least so far. It, that may be incredibly rare, you know? We'll go from life in the universe to life in Connecticut, uh, Jay, I hear Intelligent there's been a, life? No. Oh. There's been a, a <laughs> God, no. chupacabra sighting right in our backyard. All right, settle down, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Almost literally in your backyard. Wait, did we shoot it? Did did whoever was involved shoot it? That's did somebody, no. did somebody no, it eat it? It has not been shot. Okay. Somebody ate it. There's something... <laughs> Yum. I, I never uh, vocalized this before, but every time I hear the word chupacabra, you know what I hear in my head? What? La chupacabra, la chupacabra. <laughs> oh my God. Da, 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 da. That's Somebody, like cucaracha. I know, but so, uh, somebody's got to write the la chuca, like chucarabra, chupacabra. Uh, chup- chupacabra. Chupacabra. Now you'll never be able to say it. They got to they write it for the Ben cockroach. Radford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As a matter of fact, like uh, Ben's talking head would be really funny singing that song, wouldn't it? With the, oh, like a jib jab like, kind of yeah. animation. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's anyway. only there's only one thing interesting about this story of a strange animal being sighted in Southport, Connecticut, and that is that the freaking guy who reported on it pretty much manufactured the hype about this story because here's the story. An animal, possibly that has mange, came and jumped in somebody's yard and was seen killing a goose. The animal looks kind of like a fox or maybe a small coyote. There's not, there's nothing otherworldly about it or demonic or any kind of like you know, uh, you know no red glowing yeah eyes blood or drinking fifty horns. It's definitely an animal that um that looks strange you know meaning that it doesn't look like it should normally, um, which means that like a lot of the hair isn't there that you would expect to be there. I very closely looked at the picture of it that they took. I looked at a picture of of wolves, of coyotes, and of foxes. And I think size-wise and everything, it's either a young coyote or it's a full-grown fox. No, Jay, this is a coyote with mange. Okay. But no it's, doubt. 
that that's cool. What I'm saying though is the face actually does look like existing animals. You know what I mean? It's not like yeah. something strange. No, or I saw I saw the picture. I'm like, what the hell? It's a coyote. Um, I mean, it's 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 clearly a coyote. I mean, it does have mange, so it doesn't have. It's not as furry as a. Do you want to describe is. what mange is? Yeah, it's a yeah. disease. We talked about this. Remember the, the mangy yeah. bear that was mistaken for Bigfoot or something? Now we got a mangy coyote mistaken for Chupacabra. Yeah. Oh, the bear paw. The bear yeah. paw. Mange Why is the basically, there's, there's two parasites, two insects that cause mange. And basically they they infect the skin. They make the animal's skin get scaly and the hair falls out. And it's really, really painful. It could even kill an animal. It's pretty It's pretty bad. Um, some dogs actually get mange. You know, you, you know, basically, you pick up the parasite and you, you get it, and if it goes untreated, it could kill the animal. So, you know, whatever animal that is that it has mange, it's probably in a lot of pain. It's probably hunting really easy things, like you know, it's hunting a a goose in this instance in somebody's backyard. But the the author of the story, like it's it's typical and very disappointing, you know, shoddy news work. The the author basically went out of his way to make it seem a lot more interesting than it is. Oh, it was sensational. I don't think it was shoddy or anything. I think it was just deliberately sensational. Any excuse to bring up the, the name Chupacabra instead of saying, oh, somebody took a picture of a mangy coyote in their backyard killing a goose. Who cares? Yeah, and the connection to Chupacabra was the person that took the picture was like, I took the picture and I put it on Facebook and some people responded and said it's the Chupacabra. So if that's good <laughs> if that's good some for people. this reporter <laughs> – now, that very well could have been any one of us joking about, hey, it's a chupacabra, you know. It passed the Facebook filter. Yeah, yeah. it must be true. So, you know, the, the author is like reporting on some schmuck on Facebook, you know, right. calling it from the hip. No, get out of here. All right, but, but that's what they said. Down. Some people think it's chupacabra. That's how they reported it. Yeah, that's a typical Believed by that, some. Yeah, that journalists yeah, use. Yeah. Whenever you Facebook. hear the word some. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the, uh, the the town's animal control officer, he said, looks like a coyote would mange. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. <laughs> it's I, not I, the and only... And then the reporter said, go away, kid, you bother. <laughs> go away, kid, you bother. <laughs> so um, I, I am very interested in coyotes for some reason. I've actually seen them in my back in the woods behind my house on a couple of occasions. Do you know when they, they their range expanded to include Connecticut? Yeah. Four for one. <laughs> no. What year? Yeah, what year? 1982. No. The mid 1845. The mid 1950s. Yep. So th- they were originally limited to the western plains in the Midwestern United States. Uh, but as civilization expanded, the coyote has adapted very well to 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 modern civilization and their uh, territory has expanded. Now they live in North America from Alaska all the way to the eastern seaboard and down into Mexico. That's wow. a hardy species. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're one of the species that has benefited from urban sprawl and uh, and civilization. They are, are comfortable living right next to, you know, uh, where people are living. Uh, they're nocturnal, so they're not out during the day. Uh, there are actually quite a few in large cities. I think we, yes. we reported really? a couple years ago. Oh, yeah. There was like, yep. like 80,000 coyotes in Chicago or something. Uh, in fact, in uh, in Connecticut, in my neighborhood, you really can't have an outdoor cat because their days are numbered if you try to allow a cat to live outdoors. Um, The coyotes will snap up any small animal, small pets. Similar to the fox problem in England. Yeah. 
Here come the foxes. I've known many people that have lost oh, their pets God. to coyotes. Yeah. So that's why we keep our cats indoors. So we have a large dog. That's a good. So if you have a large dog in your yard, that keeps away the small critters that attract the larger critters like coyotes or even bears. Um, but yeah, I mean, so what you've got though are you know a lot of people who don't necessarily realize that there are coyotes sort of lurking around their area. So I think it makes sightings like this all the more plausible. Yeah, where they look they'll weird. see something they don't understand. And immediately, like the mount. Yeah. Here's yeah. here's another interesting fact I just learned researching this is that the eastern coyote is now a separate population from the western coyote, and it's larger because it has interbred with uh, with uh, Canadian wolves. And really? Yeah. So they have a little bit of Canadian yeah. wolf blood in them now, and that it made them a little bit larger than their western counterparts. Cool. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Um, Apparently, this like is the season too. for coyotes with mange because just a few weeks ago, or last week even, uh, another chupacabra was spotted in Texas. And uh, there, there's a picture uh, from very far away, obviously. Um, looks like a, like a coyote with mange. But in this case, uh, a Texas teenager spotted it. He said, and I quote, it looks like nothing I've personally seen before. And then he shot it. <laughs> shot it until it stopped oh, moving. <laughs> shot Good it for you. dead. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, What's and that? Then, Blam! And my boy Billy. <laughs> I've never seen one of those. Try to stay in my Ooh. life. My boy Billy shot the chupacabra. <laughs> yeah. Evan, get us back up to date on Who's That Noisy? Yeah, let's get back up to speed with our noises, shall we? Here was the last Who's That Noisy. We had some interesting guesses as to what Somebody that guessed was. their mother-in-law. That mother-in-law, the yes. Standard. Other, <laughs> yes. Similar kind of... Nobody uh, was brave enough to say that that's their wife. Mm. <laughs> your mother-in-law was kind of a cheap shot. But uh, if I recognize it, that's some kind of raptor, right? It was some kind of a, a bird in the raptor family. Uh, is an owl in the raptor family? Yes. Oh, there yeah. you have it. Yes. So therefore... Yes, raptors are hawks, eagles, uh, vultures, and owls. Owls, it's a it's a meat eating bird. Yeah, right. It's a raptor. The yeah. common barn owl. So what's barn he pissed off? A lovely about? creature, or she? I have no clue. Barn owls are actually very pretty. One of my favorite favorite. Owls. They're cool. They're awesome. They really are. Yeah. We had, we had two people guess the correct answer at approximately the same time, so I'm going to call it a tie. How's that? That's your prerogative. Uh, that and and therefore it is done. So, congratulations to Michael from Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, who guessed via email. And congratulations to, from the message boards, number one, Walshie, W-A-L-S-H-I-E, preceded by the pound sign one. Number one, Walshie. And these people are apparently very familiar with this call, so they get a little too close to barn owls, more so than I would be willing to. Yeah. Not yeah, all owls can, hoot. A lot of them screech. Yeah. And if you have one in your area, you know it. I mean, if you yeah. were walking around the woods and you heard that, well, I'd, I'd drop to the floor and cover my head. I don't know what I would it's know actually, what else it's to a, do. Owls are, are commonly, owls' calls are commonly mistaken for ghostly screeches of, you know, murdered women and children. Right. Along with the, the screams of foxes and things like that. Yeah. And mother-in-laws, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and mother-in-laws. Yeah. 
We have a Cooper's hawk living in our backyard that and uh, nesting, and the baby like some some days, like all day, the Cooper's hawk is making the similar kind of screechy noise. Ugh. That's so what pretty do you cool, do? actually. It's cool. Yeah, that is cool. It's cool. Just you, know, you don't hear disturbing. it in the house. You just hear it when you're outside, but it's cool. Mm. Cooper in the house. I, I mean, if Koopa. you know what it is, it's cool. If you don't, then yeah, well, you could see the, you could see the mother flying around. I want the 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 hawk though won't hunt in our actual yard, which is unfortunate because we have this infestation of Mice. chipmunks. Oh, chipmunks. Yeah. Aww. It's so funny. There's like 20 chipmunks running around our backyard. They have little tr- trails that they follow. There's like this little chipmunk trail through the backyard. You could see the path that A they follow. A road system. They, they, they go <laughs> <chipmunk> so... trail. <laughs> which not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't normally care, but they're, uh, they're poaching my garden, so, you know. Hey. Oh, hey. So all bastards. Are bastards. Hands off the goods. So, you yeah. know, it would help me out if the Cooper's Hawk could eat some of them. It'd be nice. Right? Yeah. Wow, Steve, you're heartless, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't so eat my tomatoes. Answer. Stay away. What do you so, got for this week, Evan? All right, here we go. This week's Who's That Noisy? Take a pinch and a little bit of wine. Well, I'll try it right now. Oh, good heavens. <laughs> no, no, no. You must do nothing of the kind. You see, this is a uh, homeopathic medicine. Uh, if you take it without having a headache, it may do you no end of harm. Uh, wait till you have one and then try it. You will be astonished at the result. Hmm. Sound advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Whatever you do, don't take a homeopathic remedy unless you actually have an, an ailment. <laughs> That's right, because if you take it when you don't have it, you may get it. <laughs> Is that what he was inferring? It'll cause you no end of harm, man. No, uh, I, can, I can imagine. I can only imagine. Okay. <laughs> well, that was interesting. <laughs> All right, good luck, everyone. Give us your best guess, please. Well, let's go on with our interview. We're here now at TAM9 with Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill, welcome back to the Skeptic's Guide. It's great to be here, being guided skeptically. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we do. Uh, We really enjoyed our interview with you a few years ago. We're glad to to meet you in person. That was over Skype. It's always great to have the face-to-face interviews. Uh, Can you tell us uh, what you're talking about here at TAM9 this year? Well, I'll talk about how I got started in skepticism. And uh, I came across this exchange of... Letters. These are physical letters on paper with Carl Sagan. And uh, talk about those briefly. But the big thing is I want to remind everybody, all of the skeptics, critical thinkers, magicians, and so on, that we have to engage people. Now, it's mm-hmm. great that uh, the amazing meeting grows every year. That's mm-hmm. a good sign. But we have to engage people, especially our leaders, in the process of science and critical thinking skills and debunking charlatans. So this is all uh, – because the, the big problem is going to be climate change. This is mm. going to be – I don't mean to be dismissive. This is going to affect everybody in the world. And we've got to get her done. And right. for that, we need, <laughs> so we need science, and especially we need engineers. Mm-hmm. So, so I want everybody to – well, <laughs> come to my talk. I'll, in 30 minutes, I'll have it all straightened out. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a process. I, I remind everybody – at least for me, I, I got real involved in skepticism and critical thinking, which led to the eventual creation of the Bill Nye the Science Guy show about pseudoscience. We did, uh, one of the 100 titles is pseudoscience. It's one of the most popular titles among teachers because it became clear to me that it's very important to learn to think critically. But you don't come to that 
in a day mm-hmm. or an hour. It takes many months and years to sort of... Im- one thing leads to... You mean astrology's not true? Wow. You mean, <laughs> you mean I can't levitate ping pong balls? Wow. <laughs> and so it, it takes a long time, but then you begin to recognize it. I think everybody begins to recognize it pretty quickly. Well, I... I just have to say, I, I said earlier that I was going to save my gushing for when we started recording. So allow me to just get some gushing out. I gushing's good. This is good yeah. gushing. It's not, good it's gushing. Not, not hemorrhaging. Good gushing. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> I don't think far. so. Uh, maybe it gets out of control. Yeah, but it's okay. Steve's a doctor. Um, oh, good. I, uh, sure. So slit your wrist. You'll be fine. Exactly. Yeah. No, I kid. Go ahead. It's very nice. <laughs> yeah. I No, I, I was a huge, huge fan. I'm a huge fan. Um, but you, you know, I, I think your show came at a time in my life when, you know, I really needed a, a great science role model, you know, and... and it's very nice. That's me. It, That's yeah, great. And, and I, I think I'm one of, you know, millions of kids who, who went through the, the same thing. And what happened to me, though, was that uh, later on, you know, I would go on to hit high school age and, and just sort of lose interest in, in science and focus more on on writing and things like that. And it wasn't until later in life that I started calling myself a skeptic and getting involved in this and then uh, rediscovering my appreciation in science. But I think that what your show did for me, what Bill Nye, the science guy, did for me was lay a very important groundwork that now I find myself going back to and really appreciating. Well, good. And I'm it's sure I'm not the only one. That's great. What we want is not to, to – everybody says this. The facts of science are important. Mm-hmm. It's, I'll tell you, here's a good number. The diameter of the sun is 109 Earths. That's good. That's a good number to know. Mm-hmm. But it's not the point. Uh, the point is the process. So yeah. if you got the process out of it, man – I guess I've done my job. <laughs> no, that's that's wonderful. And so we now, it's a very important time in history. We want our leaders to appreciate the process of science. Yeah, I'm going to echo what Rebecca says. I'm older than Rebecca. I managed. Well, to, obviously, I managed. To <laughs> Sorry, get, <laughs> just fooling around. I managed to get through college. I mean, and I'm talking to my high school education and through my college education without having to take a chemistry class, without having to take a biology class. Whoa. And, and some other fundamental science classes. It wasn't until your show that I realized exactly wow. what these things were. But I think that also goes to the state of science education in the country. That how, how is it that we can graduate people with, with basic degrees from colleges without being required to have these basic understandings of science? Well, this is, your, this is what makes us all crazy. Yeah. Science is the best idea humans have ever had. That's my claim. <laughs> and if it's not the best idea, let's replace it through the process of science. That's what you do. If you've got a better idea, throw it out. We'll try something new. But this way of discovering how nature works is, is fantastic. And we want everybody to know and appreciate it. And it's also, I think, it's, of course, important to learn some facts. It's good to know that there are natural elements and helium's different from hydrogen and so on. Uh, but what you really want is to get the critical thinking skill, and that's what the amazing meeting, TAM, is all about. Over the years, you've, it seems to me that you've sort of switched focus from, you know, you used to do this fantastic show for kids, but now I feel like you're doing a lot more content for adults. Was that a conscious decision? On yeah, well, I mean, I've done, I did a hundred kids shows. <laughs> that was and, enough. <laughs> well, not that, well, the funding ran out. I mean, everybody got tired of, uh, of 
Bill, the U.S. administration. I, I was changed. pissed at you when you when you ended the show because I was a kid. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. You know I'm and sorry. I'm literally like, "Where's the guy?" I know. I know. <laughs> Where's the guy feeding my brain? <laughs> so I'll, I'm trying to come back. You know, I'm director. I'll take you back. <laughs> I'm director of the Planetary <laughs> Society now, and we're going to have a bunch of videos that will be distributed online, mostly. You know, the world has changed in 15 years. It's not uh, six or seven TV stations now. It's the long tail. There's literally, if you want to count, millions of ways to watch television. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do these videos about science of space exploration that involve how you control heat on a spacecraft, how you push spacecraft through space. They'll be about the length of Consider the Following. Do you remember Consider Mm -hmm. the Following? So three minutes, two and a half minutes, three minutes, 40 seconds, something like that. And they will be compelling and amazing and fabulous. No doubt. And they'll be good. Bill, are you worried, like me, and I hope you are, that the space shuttle ending and the gap that we have until the next cool thing that comes out from NASA, are you worried that we're going to lose some inspiration to children? No. Okay, Uh, Because uh, I think the shuttle – let me put it to you this way. This is a a good one. Shooting from the hip – how many people would you say have flown in space? Fifty. Um, no. Fifty is good. Five hundred and fifty. Hmm. I think it's five hundred twenty-eight. Oh wow! Yeah. So it is no longer to boldly go where no one or no man, excuse me, has gone before. Now it's to timidly go where five hundred twenty-eight people have already been. So you can't. We can't move forward in space exploration until the shuttle's retired. It costs over a billion dollars U.S. to do a shuttle flight to go to low Earth orbit. I mean, it's just, that's not a good value, everybody. So you're saying we should go to the moon? Uh, I'm not a big fan of going to the moon. But like Rebecca, <laughs> do you want to go to the moon? If, if, if you were offering me a ticket right now, I would. You would? Yeah. I, w- I would do it. Would yeah. you want to go to the moon or Mars? Mars. Yeah, why? Because it's cooler. Because no one has ever been there. Before. No one's ever been there. So... I'd be afraid of the radiation, though. Well, that's the thing. Uh, <laughs> the radiation in space is the is, is it, a big challenge for it, space travel. It, it seems to me all not insurmountable, but much worse than people think. You need you need to launch incredible shielding to to uh, protect yourself from the from the cosmic radiation, and it's really a deal killer right now. I don't think we're going to be going soon because of that. Well, it depends what you mean by soon. Well, Twenty right. years, thirty years in yeah. Bob's lifetime. That's what he means. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, but you, I, Bob, I don't think you're going to qualify for a mars astronaut but you <laughs> might qualify shape. for an, yeah well you might qualify for an asteroid astronaut there you go. and so what you would do this people throw this in space exploration they throw these words around the architecture is you would park gas tanks at these lagrange points these places in space where uh the gravity is balanced with this going to the orbit you're going you're hurtling around the sun in an orbit and the gravity of the Earth, the gravity of the Sun, the gravity of the spacecraft. Okay. And then maybe there'd be a halo orbit around the Lagrange point, this little going around it. Oh, it's very cool. Anyway, you'd park gas tanks there, and then you'd go off. You'd go up there, fill up your tank, and fly deeper into space. And the reason you want to go to Mars is it is not beyond beyonding that there are living things there. And if we found, or fossil living things, let's say, if we found evidence of life on Mars, these would be mi- microbes, Mars probes, it would change the world. Mm-hmm. It would be like the discovery that the Earth goes around the sun instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. It would be like uh, discovering that uh, 
Jupiter has moons just like our moon, like Copernicus or Galileo. It would change everything. It would change the way you view what I like to call your place mm. in space. So it seems like you and, uh, and Neil Tyson uh, kind of agree, go to a place where there may be life. That's going to be all the inspiration that we need to push it forward. Yes, but the word inspiration, what is it? If you stop looking out, if you stop exploring the space around us, what does that say about you? Oh, I don't care. I'm going to stay home. And from an evolutionary standpoint, I think your tribe would not succeed if you had that attitude, right. if you didn't mm-hmm. go and look and see what's over the next hill. So this some people talk about it's innate in us to explore. It is, I think. And so the deal is we cannot explore or go into space or whatever the expression is at the same financial commitment level that we had with Apollo. That was the Cold War. That was the Soviet Union versus the United States. Whoever gets people on the moon first wins. And indeed, 11, or however you reckon, about 10 years later, the Soviet Union went out of business. And so the putting people on the moon did help end the Cold War, help resolve it. You're not going to have that kind of spending now. I mean, I'm not saying lower your expectations. Just make them different. We're going to spend money and explore space for the betterment of all humankind, but we're not going to conduct another Cold War for, to do it. Do you think that the future of space exploration is in private industry? Well, the word exploration, yeah, probably. Just keep in mind that flying rockets to low Earth orbit, people might call it exploration. It might be done by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA's Exploration Mission Directorate. But it's not really exploring anything new. I mean, mm-hmm. getting economical rockets to low Earth orbit is a great thing to do. And what, that will be private industry. What do you think the balance should be for NASA or whatever of uh, manned or you know, peopled space human. exploration human play, and versus robotic? I mean, this is well, the ongoing debate. Well, this is, this is our business. Yeah. And let me remind everybody. I'm all for space exploration. I'm head of the Planetary Society. You know, that's great. But we've got to explore the ocean, too. Just throw that out. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Balance is, there's a very cool story that Steve Squires will tell, or Scott Hubbard. He was the Mars czar. Steve Squires was the principal investigator, is principal investigator on Spirit and Opportunity rovers that are driving around. They were in, they were running tests on this robotic rover simulator, and the thing broke in the desert in Mojave. And so he says to all these scientists standing around, you guys go find some rocks, you know, just make yourself useful. You know, these are all geologists. So the, they all come back in a few minutes with rocks that you would expect to find on Mars. Jerosite, hematite, one of these crazy things. And so he estimated that what, a hu- what a, our best robots, built by our best robot builders, driven by our best robot drivers, what those do in about a, a week, a human does in about a minute. Mm. So if you could get a place on Mars that was really worthy, really worth looking into... It, you'd send humans. Mm-hmm. But the robots are going to be built by humans. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, if they break down, they get buried in dry ice on the North Pole of Mars, you leave them there. <laughs> so you're saying we haven't found a sweet spot yet to hit Mars? Oh, yeah. Just remember, landing on Mars, freaking difficult business. Oh, yeah. uh, so they talk about the landing ellipse. Have you heard this story? Yeah. 50 kilometers long. I mean, <laughs> it's not like, you know, uh, hitting a bullseye with an arrow. I mean, it, you're hitting 
a pat you're hitting a small country with a baseball i mean it's landing accurately is quite difficult so why is what's so hard about landing on mars versus any other planet uh well it's a long way away and so whatever you take there takes a lot of gas a lot of fuel and you're coming in generally at supersonic speeds and so there's aero braking aerodynamic braking and there's supersonic parachutes but it's not like landing in a helicopter. We're just not at that level yet. Yeah. There's not much of an atmosphere for the There's not much, yeah, yeah, it's a, so, but, oh, 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 oh. Planetary size, big advocate of Mars airplanes. Yeah. Mars airplanes would just be sexy. I mean, oh, my gosh, it would be so cool. I've never in heard of them way. before. But oh, no, yeah, no, there's a I big, one, right? several <laughs> NASA studies have been done. A guy, our main projects guy, Dr. Bruce Betts, uh, is, was, worked on Mars airplanes for quite a while. It's about Mach... Point eight. Uh, so just bear in mind, Mach numbers have a subtlety where the atmosphere is very thin. Uh, the molecules are free to roam, but there's a lot fewer of them. So you're slinging along with a conventional wing, wings. And you put a camera on the vertical tail and you'd have the sort of point of view shot, or better yet, two Mars airplanes, one photographing the other. And then you steer around. The trouble there, Mars airplane, you take seven months or 11 months, depending on the orbit, to get to Mars. You can only leave every 26 months. And the airplane flies for nine minutes and it crashes. Okay. It's like, <laughs> it's, like it's a huge investment. But yeah. the inspiration that would be provided by such a mission, or the Mars balloon, that is a sexy idea. So what we want to do is go to the equator of Mars on a summer day where these underground or under sand glaciers are oozing salt water out of the canyon wall and look for microbes or fossil microbes, stromatolite kind of something or others. It would be the coolest thing, everybody. It would, it would change the world. But that takes years. It's a lot of messing around. Okay, if we build these rovers, all this political uh, opposition to having plutonium on anything, okay, we'll let you have some plutonium. So now we have a uh, rover that's got a plutonium battery. If you're, if you're scoring along with us, it's plutonium-238, which you don't make weapons out of, but is, of course, fantastically dangerous and horrible and toxic and everything else. But it's great for batteries. Then you drive around on Mars, and you, you look for places that were probably wet. Then you pick the next landing place 26 months after that, and then you get closer and closer. It takes decades. So if we were to send people there, would we send a bunch of gear first and just drop it off, or would we... Oh, man, people argue about that. Uh, probably, yeah. You'd probably certainly put something in orbit. And so the, the mission architecture, Yeah. oh, we love that. Oh, we love <laughs> to talk about that. I'm so, I, if I were smart enough to be a scientist, I would want to be involved with that type of stuff. I love workflow. I love figuring out those types oh, of puzzles. Oh, man, and so as we say, uh, the management of the projects is generally the hardest part. I mean, the technical problems are quite difficult, and there's people that are good at that, but like the James Webb Space Telescope, was going to be two-something billion U.S. Now it's going to be six billion. That's If you you know if somebody tells you your car is going to cost $15,000, oh, no, it's 45000 What? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And so uh, it's, it's management is the hard part. And this is, these are important skills. And a problem really left over from the Apollo era is NASA would just start in on things and then soon the money would show up. Yeah. Oh, that's not... Things are tapering off. Like 
private industry is going to have to get involved in, with this. Well, NASA supports private industry. You know, full disclosure, Elon Musk is on the board of directors of the Planetary Society. And he's the guy that uh, got crazy rich on PayPal, and then he started his own electric car company and his own rocket company. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. Living the dream. Yeah, well, he really is, and he's going to be like <laughs> wow. the next uh, Howard Hughes. He's going to yeah. be richer than Howard Hughes. Yeah. And but he's not going to have his fingernails in a jar somewhere. I hope not. Right. He's pretty pretty down-to-earth guy. I've spent time with him. Good. And so what we want is uh, those guys to take care of the difficult but routine uh, trips to low Earth orbit. And, of course, Elon Musk is a dreamer. I mean, he started this thing. He may just go, look, I'm going to Mars. You, anybody? You know. But those big projects, like if you want – we're in Las Vegas during this broadcast. If, if you want to build Hoover Dam, you, take, you need a government. There's very few private industry mm-hmm. Hoover Dams. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And that's not a bad thing. It, that's good. That's why – Bill, <laughs> Bill, thank you very much for your thank time. You. Yeah, thank We're you so very much. excited to be sitting in front of Bill Nye, my childhood and adult hero. Thank you, Bill. It's really – thank you, guys. Let's change the world. <laughs> All right. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. You guys ready for this week? Ready. Mm. Rebecca, you swept last week. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little high off of last week's superb victory. It was a good performance of, <laughs> when it counts. Yeah. yeah. Bob, did, did you actually get Very mad nice. or what? No, I mean, I wasn't mad. I was like a little, you know, intimidated because I know that that accent sounds so stupid. But I was and talking I never, about having I, to read the uh, dialogue Jar Jar Binks from Star Wars yeah. as for losing the, but, uh, the awesome. face off of Rebecca. <laughs> but I got lots of, so I had fun with it and I'm glad I got some really good feedback. So it was a fun bit. It so was that's, fun. Uh, so that's why I lost on purpose. Oh, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here are this week's items. Ready? Item number one, a new analysis indicates that the greatest threat to endangered large African mammal species is the conservation laws designed to protect them. Item number two, biologists discover that the cottony cushion scale insect fertilizes its eggs with sperm that live inside of it as a separate infectious tissue lineage. And item number three, scientists discover that the biomass of a species in a given ecosystem is determined entirely by its place in the food chain and not by animal type size or other variable. Rebecca, since you're doing so well, why don't you go first? Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, So, greatest threat to endangered large African mammal species is the conservation laws designed to protect them. Uh, Yeah, I mean, this this sounds plausible to me um, simply because... Oftentimes, lawmakers will enact bills that are meant to do one thing but miss the point entirely. Yeah, I mean, I can't think offhand what that might entail. Maybe the laws are so restrictive that people aren't able to allow the species to breed, or maybe because the laws are so restrictive it's not worth people's time to protect the habitat that they live in and so yes i believe that um for the second one um i assume that there's something called the cushion scale insect is that right the cottony cushion scale insect that's that's the name of the insect the cottony cushion scale insect <laughs> yes that's <laughs> the name that's of the insect bob squarepants who, yeah. yeah who named it that fertilizes its eggs with sperm that live inside of it 
as a separate infectious tissue lineage. That is crazy. But in other okay. words, instead of mating with a male, like the right. sperm is like this other entity living inside of it that fertilizes it from within. That's that's fasc- fascinating. It's like it, it's it's asexual, an asexual insect in a way. Although I guess I think aren't worms also capable of reproducing asexually? I know worms have both male and female genitalia. So yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> Not like in a jar, Jay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, okay, I can believe that too. It's cool, um, but believable. So, which leaves us with uh, the biomass of a species. I just have to read this aloud. The biomass of a species in a given ecosystem is determined entirely by its place in the food chain and not by animal type, size, or other variable biomass can i get a definition definition the total mass of a species oh uh, okay the mass of the entire species. species yeah oh it's determined entirely by its place in the food chain gosh that i don't wow i'm trying to think of what the relative biomass of species would be moving up the food chain I, I would imagine it would get substantially smaller as it moves to the top um in the traditional sort of pyramid style food chain we're used to seeing but really there's the food chain is an over overly simplified graphic that doesn't really apply because i think we should talk about food webs at least that's what i learned when i was a kid um so shit up now so, yeah, well, I think that it's difficult to define, like, an animal's place in a food web. You know, if you're talking about a chain, you're talking about a linear progression of animals that could be compared one to the other. Like, this animal is on this level along with all these animals. But I think it's more complex than that. And so I don't think that you can necessarily determine it, the biomass of the species based on that. So I'm going to say that that one is the fiction. Okay. That, that might have been my longest uh, science fiction uh, I answer think so. ever. Bo- I, think so. I don't know. I was having trouble, like, thinking. Uh, yeah. Well, just mostly comprehending them as you said them. I needed to think. They were more. they were complex this week. I acknowledge. Yeah. Cottony cushion scale insect. And for a little I haven't yeah. heard any of them, so I haven't read of any of them. That's so. good. All right, Bob. Yeah, I haven't heard of any of these either. It's very, very pissed off, but um. <laughs> So I'm going to start with the second one, the cottony cushion scale insect. Um, that's so, so damn cool. I hope it's true. I could totally see it happening, having a, um, uh, having something that, that exists within the insect that, uh, it's really the, um, the male of the species is how I interpret it. And I, and, and just looking at other animals and, and how they, and sometimes the, the disparity and the difference between the male and female. And I could totally see, I could see this happening. Um, I mean, there's not a lot that would surprise me when it comes to this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's feasible. I could totally see it. Um, so I think I'm going to tentatively, tentatively go with that one. The third one, yeah, that one's also, um, yeah, it, it's so much more complicated. But, I, yeah, I could kind of see in my head how how where you are in the food chain could could uh, indicate. But entire, you're saying it's in Determined entirely. Um, 
Yeah, that's kind of iffy. But, um, you know, I'm actually going to, I'm going to go with one because I'm going to say that's fiction about the endangered large animal, Af- uh, the, the uh, endangered large African mammal species because, yeah, I could see laws actually being counterproductive and, and somehow giving maybe poachers, uh, some type of access, unique access that wasn't intended or, Having all these things go wrong with the conservation laws, but still, I, I I keep thinking that the biggest the biggest threat to endangered large animal species is is the disappearance of the habitat. Um, to me, I've always thought that now maybe the fact that you're talking about large African mammal species changes that. Um, perhaps that's why I'm going to be wrong on this one. But I'm just going to go with I'm going to go with that one. That's the one I, I I'm most familiar with, and the other two are just totally throwing me for a loop, and I can't really think too deeply on them. So I'm going to just go with the uh, the endangered mammal species as the fiction. Okay. Jay? So the one about the uh, the African mammal species that's uh, actually being endangered by the laws that are there to help it, I absolutely could believe that. Um, the short-sightedness of, of people is amazing. And yeah, it wouldn't surprise me as, at all that if there's something that they missed, something that they're doing that's actually harming the animals. The second one about the biologists that discover the cottony cushiony scale insect fertilizes itself. That's another one. Like, yeah, I absolutely believe that. I mean, I've seen stranger things and, and read about stranger things. So that one is definitely plausible. And the last one about the scientists that discover the biomass of a species. Yeah, I think I'll agree with Rebecca and say that one's a fake. Okay, Evan. Bob made some very good points about the endangered large African mammal species. Um, but I think that gets trumped by the fact that these conservation laws designed to protect them, this is a, a perhaps a classic case of good intentions and unintended consequences, which is, you know, replete throughout uh, the history of lawmaking. I'm, I'm inclined to think that one is true. The biologist discovering the cottony cushion scale insect uh, of the three, this is to me the most believable because there are all sorts of crazy stuff going on in the... Uh, world of insects and animals and other things, you know, <clears throat> animals with no heads and frogs that, you know, switch their sexes based on whatever is needed at the time, if I recall that correctly, right? So this this kind of falls into that category of very weird yet uh, extremely plausible. And that leaves the biomass one, which uh, Rebecca made lots, lots of good points uh, concerning that. Uh, most of which I uh, pretty much agree with. So I'm going with the biomass one as being fiction. Okay, so you all agree that biologists discover that the cottony cushion scale insect fertilizes its eggs with sperm that live inside of it as a separate infectious tissue lineage. Why not? You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Sweet. Crazy. That is crazy. It It is essentially... The male of the species is yeah. a clump of tissue that lives inside of the female. It's got to be. What else? Yeah, it's got to be. <laughs> what so else do you call it? The scale insects, there are a few of them, were, are uh, hermaphrodites. I, and I, the article I, I read said they're the only insect hermaphrodites. Wow. Meaning, but a, a true hermaphrodite produces egg and sperm, right? It, it produces yep. both gametes. Uh, but what they discovered was that the sperm was not being produced by the female or hermaphroditic cushion scale insect, that, in fact, it was their, quote-unquote, father's sperm that persisted, that got basically carried through the the child 
uh, and persist in the next generation, and then that's the sperm that is used to fertilize them. So as the as as the insect formed and came into being, it grabbed a piece of the father's sperm and made a little sack or the, for it. The sperm, it, they, well, they said the sperm like infects it. That's why they call it like an infectious tissue with with its own lineage. Huh. That's awesome. Now there there are still very rare pure males will crop up in this species. Really? Yeah, cool. they're, but they're just about on the verge of being completely eliminated. It's, it's, it's very, they said it's very rare. And they were able to model how this kind of thing can happen. You know, once you have this situation set up, there, uh, you know, evolutionary pressures could favor, you, you know, having this sort of your own supply of sperm that you got from your daddy, apparently. <laughs> I hope, that, I hope that doesn't happen to human males. Yeah, right. That would stink. Come a lump eh, of tissue. I'd be all right with it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the picture. The picture. Of Not you guys, obviously. Oh yeah. Some people, yeah. Some people do. To, what that lots do to of people, lots of people think we already are blunt lumps of tissue. <laughs> These insects are really bizarre looking because they're surrounded by an a waxy coating. Yeah, they, they, so you don't. Like looks like a piece of food that dropped on the floor. Yeah, that's why random, it's random. <laughs> called what it looks is. like. Wow. It looks like a dessert. It's really cute. <laughs> yeah, because this, this is this waxy coating on the outside. It, it looks like the end of a Q-tip. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of like after, after you pull filthy it out of your ear. Yeah, filthy, horrible. Not <laughs> so cute anymore. Q-tip. Yeah. <laughs> or it All could right. be the end. The end of a burning cigarette. You see it. Yeah, kind of. The, the ash at the uh, end yeah. and the... It, does, it looks like a Christmas on. candy. It looks like a Christmas candy. You do, Ew, it does look like something... You know, if, you know, except for the, the hair and stuff. Like, you could just pop in your mouth, <laughs> yeah. you know? Oh, yeah, of course. It looked absolutely disgusting. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. You're yeah. popping the wrong things in, in your mouth. That's appetizing. Yeah, it looks like yeah. something you would eat before it fell on the ground. This is after it fell on the ground. All right. Yeah. This is, yeah. This, this you find the... this under your bed. It has all these dust bunnies on it. Can we move on? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's go to number one. A new analysis indicates that the greatest threat to endangered large African mammal species is the conservation laws designed to protect them. Bob, you think this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is the fiction. Yeah, wow. baby. Good job, Bob. Well Ooh, doggy. <laughs> All right, Bob. You got it back from last week. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I went with the. Yeah, it's really say something goofy, Rebecca. It does sound uh, very plausible that uh, the there would be unintended consequences of conservation laws. It is a complicated thing, but what the new analysis showed is the greatest threat to uh, endangered species, not just African, but also is reporting Asian, on it is uh, organized oh. crime. The really? yeah, ah. poachers. Poachers. I mean, basically, the poachers have become organized and are becoming very efficient and effective. They're evading uh, the the laws and and the and the uh, enforcement. The yeah, the yeah. authorities. They're using the internet in order to evade detection, uh, to you know, to change up their trade routes to get into markets, etc. Yep. Facebook and, they're, and Twitter. They're basically just kicking the ass of the enforcement agencies that are supposed to be stopping them, and who have got who have fallen behind, and they really have to step up their efforts if they're going to save the tiger and the rhino and these species. Jeez. Do you know what the what's driving what what demand is driving this market? Uh, pseudoscience, which which is yes. pseudoscience. Right. And, it's east. And it's mainly penis enlargement. Stuff. It's mainly the East Asian market of traditional Chinese medicine for yep. animal parts. 
It's a bottomless pit, it. an insatiable appetite for these animal parts that is pouring the money into these organized yeah. now organized uh, criminal that organizations. Pisses me off. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Tiger bones and rhino horns and for nothing. For nothing, yeah. right? Yeah, right. For no purpose whatsoever. Right. That's the that's well, money. That's the frustrating part. That's it. My yeah. erection seems better. <laughs> <laughs> I lasted three minutes instead of two. My penis isn't shrinking anymore. The penis is shrinking. You know about the, the uh, you guys know about the penis shrinking disease. We've talked about that before, right? The, the yeah, the Korean thing. It's a the the panic that happened. Yeah, it, the right? shrinking penis yeah. panic is an Asian culture. Oh yeah, thing yeah. Um, which means that scientists discover that the biomass of a species in a given ecosystem is determined entirely by its place in the food chain and not by animal type size or other variable is science. Well, there you have it. I oh. still dispute the use of the word food chain. This is the <laughs> National Food Science Web. Foundation, Rebecca. You can't argue. What do they know? Yeah. Pikers. You know, no. This is obviously dumbed down. The yeah. So what, what they found what they found uh, was that when they analyzed species in an ecosystem that you can tell how many of an individual species, like, like how many tigers there are in an ecosystem or whatever, based entirely on its size and its its place in the food chain like is it a you know does it is it eating uh, is it an herbivore is it a primary consumer a secondary consumer is the top, you know top of the food chain it looked at another way that the biomass is independent of size so it doesn't matter if it's a parasite this is the thing they added an analysis of parasites which has been neglected in the past and that gave them sort of a broader view. So even when you look at completely different lifestyles, like a parasite versus versus a, an herbivore or a hunter or whatever, a carnivore, it, it doesn't really matter how big they are or how they're surviving. It's only where they are in that you know food chain pyramid, as even if it is oversimplified. And they, it's, they said basically it's all energy dynamics. How much energy does it take to keep you alive? And that determines how much biomass the ecosystem can support, and you will fill that biomass. If you're big, there'll be fewer of you. If there are smaller, there'll be more of you. But the biomass in the end turns out to be roughly the same. Wow, mm. that is awesome. Yeah. So it's yeah. They say it, they, they, this very simple rule emerged out of this complex data, and it became more robust when they started looking at things like parasites, which hadn't been analyzed before. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I love it. And yeah, it all comes down to energy. It's how much energy does it take to make you? It, each, each step up the food chain requires more energy to make you. Therefore, there's less available in the environment and less, therefore, less biomass. Yep. Energy rules all. Uh, so good job, Bob. Use your turn. You, you and Rebecca have kind of been going back and forth in terms of sweeping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jay yeah, and Evan, man, you guys suck. We're a sweeping up at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, someone's got to. Yeah, it's food chain, you know. Well, Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I do. I, w- I had a few that I was going to pick from, but Bob helped me pick the one because of something that he just yeah. said. And the quote is, A live body and a dead body contain the same number of particles. Structurally, there's no discernible difference. Life and death are unquantifiable abstracts. Why should I be concerned? Dr. Manhattan! <laughs> oh, <laughs> Dr. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Good choice. Guy was in good shape. That's a that's a cool idea for a character. The guy is just so intelligent that he just can't relate to pedestrian concepts like a person being alive or dead. 
That really quote was sent in by thing. Alexander Adam Kiswicks. 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 Yeah, it's a pretty cool name. Well, thank you for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, of course. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.